This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. Ladies and gentlemen, this is episode one of our newest series, Retro Threads. Since our Fedora Chronicles radio show episode with Cass McGann was so successful, we decided to make her a regular part of the Fedora Chronicles. Our podcast, the one between Cass and myself, will be a lot like the others on our site. Cass and I will have a basic theme, but we will go off topic once in a while and cover whatever happens to be on our minds, so long as it's interesting to you, our listeners. On this episode, Cass and I talk about the differences between tailors and seamstresses, the business of clothing, and the importance of dressing correctly for every occasion, and the meaning of life through the perspective of clothes. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. So, anyway, um, I want to get to uh, one question that uh, I've, I've been dying to ask somebody who knows something about fabric and knows something about sewing. Uh-huh. What's the difference between the seamstress and a tailor? Um, well, that's an interesting question because most people use the words to mean a male person who sews and a female person who sews, tailor being a, a man and seamstress being a woman. And while this is broadly true, that's not what the words mean. Um, seamstress is a feminine word, but there are also seamsters, which is the masculine form of mm-hmm. the word. It's just that people who do that kind of profession have tended to be women and people who are tailors tend to be men. Although recently, just a few years ago, um, one of the most famous tailoring shops, bespoke tailoring shops in London, hired their first female cutter. Mm Mm-hmm. And when I say cutter, you know, we think, oh, cutter, that's the person who cuts the garments and, you know, in the cutting room or what have you. Um, uh, the cutter is actually the head tailor, the person who goes and says, yeah, you do this. Basically, the person who's responsible for the, uh, the product, the, like the, the buck stops here person. So the person who oversees the operation and tells everybody else what to do is, is the cutter in, in tailoring shops. Um, but I've gone astray <laughs> back to what a tailor is and what a seamstress is. A seamstress, and the, the distinction was first made in the professions, I think in the 17th century, late 17th century, I'm thinking, um, it, it was in France, court of Louis XIV, Louis XIV, actually legislated what a seamstress would do and what a tailor would do. And seamstresses at that time made uh, chemises and basically underwear. Okay. Where tailors made outer clothing. And then things got a little confusing that seamstresses started making more and more clothing for women because women's clothing was not as structured as men's clothing except for their corsets, which is an entirely different profession. You know, seamstresses or tailors, neither seamstresses nor tailors make corsets. So, um, and so this distinction grew and it, 
is kind of arbitrarily tailors make men's clothes and seamstresses make women's clothes, but that's not entirely true. It just so happens that men tend to wear a lot of clothing made by a tailor and women tend to wear a lot of clothing made by a seamstress, but they cross lines. So a friend of mine once described it as a seamstress creates clothing that is controlled by the use of seams. Okay. And a tailor creates clothing that is shaped by manipulation of fabric. Wow. All right. Which, which it, at first sounds like the same thing. <laughs> it, there's a subtle difference that it's like if you know, you know, and you yeah. don't have to explain it. But if you have to explain it, it's hard to – because you don't know how fabrics and, and materials work, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, tailoring is, is far more structured than seamstress work. Um, and seamstress work also tends to be done in the flat. So whether you're hand sewing or machine sewing, you know, if you're making a dress, it, it tends to be a flat pattern and ta-da. But if you're doing tailoring, there are a lot of things that you can't do in the flat because it won't, it won't lay properly. So, um, so for example, a woman's, uh, dress is definitely almost exclusively seamstress work, but a woman's suit is tailoring. Yeah. And, um, and it's mostly because of the use of wool, mm-hmm. although you could make a dress out of wool, you know, a, a, a seamstress could make a dress out of wool and it would be just fine. But it's the fact that she wouldn't be putting in, um, canvas inner linings and she wouldn't be pad stitching a collar and she wouldn't be, um, shaping you know stretching or or shrinking the wool with a steam iron while she sews um which is what a tailor does and i think that it behooves anyone in these professions or even in in a hobbyist whether your hobby is seamstress work or tailor's work try the other version because i think it teaches you a lot about what you do in your half of the profession, if we want to call it that. Um, I think that you, I, I think that I know a lot, a lot of seamstresses and seamsters who would benefit greatly from just taking a tailoring class or even reading a book on tailoring and learning the differences. And if you've, you've ever been a seamstress who decided to make a suit and then wondered why it didn't work. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. There you it's go. Not. So it's not. And, and it's also the, the question. I get asked the question all the time. Well, I don't actually get asked the question all the time. <laughs> I lie. Um, no one asks me, why don't you do men's patterns? Because we do men's patterns. But um, the question has come up in the past. Why don't, you know, the big pattern companies do a lot of men's patterns? And the answer is because you can't do a pattern for a suit. I mean, you can Mm-hmm. And it'll look horrible. Right. Because, because that's not the way you put it together. You know, it's not, it's not the, um, it's not the same process. It's something just, it's like a totally different animal than there's more, there's more layers to a suit than just what you see on the outside. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's all, it's all interior. The outside is kind of arbitrary. Yeah. 
and um, and it's not the role of patterns to teach you how to sew. Yeah. I'm going to say that again. Okay. <laughs> it is not the job of the pattern to teach you how to sew. Mm-hmm. You really, you know, there are there are patterns for beginners and there are patterns for experts and you need to come to them with a certain amount of knowledge because it's their job to teach you how to do how to execute the garment that they represent. It's not their job to teach you the skill set to execute the garment. Now, the, the question that I have is that, and this is true of everybody in every industry, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're watching a movie and you see somebody in your industry as a character, whether it's a minor <laughs> character or whatever. Is there something that's like when you see something in the, in the movies or television um, and, and it just drives you crazy because, I mean, obviously whoever is making the movie or, or wrote the script is taking creative license with it. Oh, Eric, what doesn't drive me crazy? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, seamstresses and tailors who don't have bloody fingers. Seamstresses and tailors who have fingernails that actually look nice. Um, (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of funny. I don't. I. It's it's not my profession to sew every day. I'm a pattern maker. Right. Um, So I don't sew every day, but I I go through these spurts. You know, when I. I work on a project and when I'm working on a project, my, all my nails break and, you know, my cuticles become, I get hang nails and, and, you know, the, my fingers get really sensitive and everything. And I have like a permanent callus on the thumb of my right hand because that's where I push my needle Yeah, and I, I should wear a thimble. Mm-hmm. But it's very inconvenient to wear a thimble on your thumb. And for some strange reason, you're supposed to push the thimble with your middle finger. And for some reason, I, I never did. I always just pushed it with my thumb. So I have this like, if you feel the tip of my thumb, there's a little bump there that's like a permanent callus because that's where I push the needle. But when I'm sewing, it gets worse. And sometimes it, it breaks and I get like a little bloody spot there because... Yeah. You know, because you, you're using your fingers and these these little needles. You're working around needles and pins and things, and so you you beat yourself up. So, um, I I can't honestly say I've seen a lot of movies that show seamstresses and tailors working, but um, when they do, you know, there there have been a couple of things, and one of them is your your fingers never look that good. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and you know, it's, it's kind of, there was a, a, a mini series that was on, um, it was Spanish and it was called, um, in Spanish, the time in between seams. It was really interesting. It was the story of a young woman who was a seamstress and she became a spy during the uh, the Spanish Revolution, the the fascist takeover. Oh, the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spanish Civil War, and um and you know so she was it, it was because she she was all had these clients who were these high placed fascists and um, interacted with Nazis and stuff like that. So she was 
uh, this undercover agent and became this undercover agent because, well, women talk to their seamstress and this woman's married to this politician and she, you know, would find out information about where they were going and things like that. And it was really interesting, but she was always beautifully dressed and never looked like she'd worked too many hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe, maybe a little, maybe, you know, when you, you meet the client for the first time in your, your studio, you're beautifully dressed, but unless you have a lot of people back in your atelier doing all the hard work for you, you're in the back room or in the basement, Yeah, <laughs> the door closed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in movies that I just have to, I either have to suspend disbelief or I annoy my friends by screaming at the screen yeah. because they get so much wrong with, uh, clothing, not, not necessarily the production of clothing. Cause like I said, it doesn't, not a whole lot of TV shows that show that, Yeah. but the, uh, the wearing of clothing, like, you know. You have these these wonderful romantic scenes where people get undressed and never have anything on under their corsets. Yeah. 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 Uh, like w when I'm watching like any sort of science fiction movie, especially Star Trek, Star Trek drives me crazy when it comes to costuming <laughs> because, okay, you're in a military organization, but you're wearing pajamas, essentially, yeah. or workout clothes. Yeah. What, like BDUs in the modern military? Eric, <laughs> they're pajamas. <laughs> Come on, we're there already. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you look at the, and it was just like, God forbid there's anything like a hole breach or anything like that, and you're exposed to the vacuum and the hard radiation of space, but it's okay, you have your space pajamas on. You're yeah, everyone's <laughs> in their jammies. Exactly. <laughs> they're made out of a... a, a revolutionary 24th century fiber that <laughs> protects you from the vacuum of space. That I don't know. That performs all of these miracles and stuff like that. And was, uh, uh, <laughs> it, it drives me crazy because this thing is, is that they don't look like they're in the military. They look like they're going to a Star Trek convention or something. They don't yeah. look like yeah. real. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. But I mean, do, do costumes in movies drive you crazy? Is that do you, do you look at you know costumes and you say why would anybody wear that in a in that kind of situation? Whereas it's like it's obviously, sometimes. yeah, yeah. Sometimes, um, generally, in in fantasy, I it doesn't bother me. But and, and sometimes it's done amazingly well. Like the, my most wonderful example is. Um, the Fifth Element. Yeah. Jean-Paul Gaultier designed the costumes for The Fifth Element. And he didn't just design the costumes that um, Bruce Willis and, and uh, you know, the main characters wore. He designed everything from the people that you never see in focus in the background walking through the spaceport. Um, supposedly, every day before they'd start shooting, he would get everybody together in a big auditorium and personally check all of the extras and what they were wearing and make sure everything was, was correct. And he didn't just, he didn't just costume a couple of characters and having costumes, a large production, not that large, but I, I costumed a Christmas Carol and there were 54 costumes and it was just wow. like, Oh my God, 
<laughs> um, but he he didn't just costume the main characters and then stop or or say, oh, and the other ones can wear something weird and right. futuristic. Right. He he had a vision of what this future looked like and he not only put like there there were rich people and poor people and middle class people and you know working class people um and he put them all in derivations of the same kind of style so if if you think about it you know in in reality we can say we all dress very differently but there's a certain continuity to the clothing we wear in 2017. You're right. And he created that continuity with a different style. So he had, you know, the dressed down version of what people, what the stylish people were wearing. And then he had, you know, the janitors in the spaceport, what they were wearing and how that, and, and it all related, you know, you, you could look at it as a whole and say, okay, I can, this makes sense. And I thought that was amazing. And it's just an extent to which no one cares, you know, that much. Five people <laughs> in the world yeah. <laughs> cared as much as I did about this movie. And I understand why movies don't go that far because really, who cares? Who cares well, what the extras are wearing? They're well, not even a focus. I, I, because. You know, you know, since I was 14 years old and trying to figure out what kind of man I wanted to be and look, watching, I'm probably like one of the few men that I know who actually like, I'll go see a movie, just go see a movie and enjoy the experience. Mm -hmm. And then maybe I want to go back and I want to watch some of the details. Because the thing is, is like, I want to know, like, how does, how does a, an actor like Harrison Ford or Humphrey Bogart dress? Mm -hmm. And, um, Maybe that's a that's a profession. Maybe I should have got into. I, I I don't know. But the thing is, is that you can tell, you can tell everything about the quality of a movie as how deep the costuming goes. Whereas mm -hmm. if it was any other movie, they would they would have put, um, you know, like janitors into jumpsuits and just say just be done with it and stuff like that. Yep. But the filth element took it to such an an extreme, which is great. Uh, but what about your your favorite costumers? Like, who's the who are the best all time costume designers? Wow, that's a question. Um, I can't not mention Edith Head. I knew it. I knew because it because she was just she was everything she needed to be. And she did costumes for so many different things mm -hmm. for so many years and so many different people without ego. Yeah. Like you can't – you look at an Edith Head creation and you don't see Edith Head. You see the character. Mm -hmm. And that's – that's hard. You know, costume designers, we're all artists and we want you to know that it's ours. And she considered the costume more important, you know, the character more important than herself. So, I mean, I'm not saying she didn't put her creative stamp on it, but she really, she really put the character stamp on it first. And that's admirable to me because I, that, that's very 
difficult, you know, um, especially someone as prolific as she was. You know, once once she made her name, would anyone have blamed her for all her costumes to have had the Edith Head look? But they didn't. They still, you know, she still worked for the studio. She still was uh, subordinate to producing that the character. Um, and so she's a great one. But, I mean, you have to remember, I'm not a costumer. Right. So I have, you know, I'm a, I'm a clothing historian, which, which makes me have different idols. <laughs> so, um, but I, I mean, at, at the same time, Gautier, what Gautier did with the, I mean, I, I always loved Gautier's stuff. I thought it was, it's wonderfully weird, and yet gorgeous. You know, I mean, it, the weird end of gorgeous. It's like there are these designers who do really crazy stuff, and it's really an art piece, and no human being wears it seriously. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you wear it to a party to show somebody that you got this designer's work, but. Um, I think Gautier is wearable, although, you know, not to a PTA meeting, maybe, <laughs> but um, as, as a, as a, as a dad, the stay at home mm -hmm. dad who participated in a lot of PTA stuff mm -hmm. um, or a lot of parent teacher functions, you see a lot of weird stuff because Do you, <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'm not a parent. I just assume that people aren't going to go to a PTA meeting in, you know, the Madonna cone bra. <laughs> well, I will tell you that a lot of P a lot of uh, other parents, because uh, they, they're stuck at home all day right? and they have only two places to go uh, and get out of the house. They'll either go to like a parent teacher conference or a parent, uh, something to do with the school, or they'll go to the grocery store. And uh, maybe it's just New England, but you do see a lot of people, I don't, don't want to say overdress, but they pull stuff out of the closet that they haven't worn in a, in, in a good long time. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's cool. And, and I'm guilty of that as well. So, <laughs> oh, no, no guilt. Honestly, that that makes my heart sing that people are going to the grocery store and something more than you know sweats. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think that that's because because uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you was about modern fashion pet peeves. Mm. Um, but of course, the thing is, I asked you a, a an in depth question. Of course, it's like I I, I get what I ask for talking yeah. about how because I just did a quick search in preparation for, for this podcast, because the thing is, it's like, I got to know, because since you've done costuming, but you're mm -hmm. not a costumer, um, you know, who, who are your favorite, um, uh, 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 costumers in, in movies and stuff like that. And every single list that I see, and maybe I'm not looking hard enough. Edith head is on the top. Yeah. Edith head. And the thing is, is that, and this, and this might sound a little too metrosexual, um, but the thing is, is that either Edith Head, the way that she dressed men is mm -hmm. that she made the shoes, the socks, the trousers match. So something like, like if a character is, is wearing, um, a, you know, wearing an outfit, wearing a costume, I don't even want to call it a, you know, a costume, but mm -hmm. the thing is, is that they don't want the, the, the color of like a flash of like mismatched socks that are mismatched with the trousers or the mm -hmm. shoes to pull mm -hmm. your attention away. Like perfect example is that they talked about this in the documentary for white Christmas 
Whereas she wanted the dancers to look seamless, especially the male dancers. Mm-hmm. And it's like everything, everything matched perfectly. And, um, and whenever my wife and I get dressed for something, we always like she, I, Edith Head is like, what would Edith, Edith Head do? Sort of oh, like, yeah. You know, like that, that, that plaque, what would Jesus do? Well, instead, <laughs> near my closet, it should say, what would Edith Head do? <laughs> what would Edith Head do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's so, it's, it's really interesting. I remember um, there's an Avengers episode um, and Mrs. Peel discovers that the people in this town are lying to her and they're not who they say they are because the police officer she meets, he sits down and crosses his legs and, and she sees his sock and he's wearing patterned socks mm-hmm. instead of you know, navy blue, what you would wear with a policeman's uniform. And she calls them brightly colored socks, which cracks me up because they're gray and blue. They're yeah. really not. They're not bright anything, but they are patterned socks, which you wouldn't wear with a uniform. And, um, and you know, this was 1967. So it's, it's kind of funny. We're like, are they polka dotted? I don't know. <laughs> I've seen much stranger socks, but, um, but it's that single moment that leads her to have the suspicion that these people aren't who they say they are, that she's not the person she's talking to isn't a real police officer. And therefore the whole thing is a sham and, and thus the mystery. And um, it cracks me up because we, uh, like, we were talking uh, last time about the thing that we interact with every single day of our lives is clothing. Yeah. And I love when I watch something that's particularly something that's not a costume drama, something that I'm not expecting to care about the clothes in, in the movie or TV show. And some essential plot point turns on a piece of clothing being wrong. Yeah. Because we think about, oh, you know, how would you know that his tie wasn't tied properly or his tie was tied left-handed and therefore he's the killer, you know, whatever. Like Um, Sherlock Holmes, like that always happens in Sherlock Holmes. mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. It does. And that's, and that's obscure. You know, Sherlock Holmes is because Sherlock notices things that human beings don't. But when, when there's something in, um, like, law and order, yeah. that, well, this, this doesn't really match the evidence because their shoelaces were tied funny. I don't know. You know, I'm making things up off the top of my head. But, but you know what I mean. It's, it absolutely thrills me, no matter how mundane it is, because it people since – the 80s, I think. Grunge. It was grunge, Eric. Grunge. Yes, yes. <laughs> that we stopped caring about clothing. We don't, we don't dress up for work. We don't dress up for school. We don't dress up for church. We don't dress up to go out to dinner. You know, we have casual fine dining. How could you have casual and fine in the same sense? Well, I, it, I it's, it drives me crazy. It yeah. does. It, it, yeah. it, you know, that's one of the, the periods in... Um, uh, you know, modern clothing. And I think that everything has gone downhill since yep. then. Because uh, yep. I was going to ask you, what, what's, what's your clothing pet peeve? And it was just like you, I think you brought it up yourself. But for me, mm-hmm. it was like, uh, um, I really had a really sort of hard time taking other people seriously when they would go to 
Oh, I, I don't know. They would go to, I don't want to say Salvation Army, but that's, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you know, secondhand stores and just buying yeah. the worst thing you could possibly find. Mm-hmm. And even like this, the, like the, the, like the crappy polyester stuff mm-hmm. and people would like wear it. And it was like, that's supposed to be fashionable. And mm-hmm. I just wonder how, how many, how many clothing designers and seamstresses and tailors went out of business because of the grunge movement. Yeah, it's it's kind of sick. And I mean, I'm all for being comfortable. But I'm comfortable in a pair of lounging pajamas that are gorgeous and well made. And yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, I I really I rail against the idea of tuxedo. Oh, it's a monkey suit. Like you don't even know the half of it. No. Put on white tie where you can't. A really funny thing. My husband and I were on a, a cruise and there was a, a formal night. So we took it quite seriously. A formal night. Uh, wear a tuxedo or a dark suit. I'm like, are you out of your mind? It's formal. Exactly. Yeah. Tux, tuxedo isn't formal. So so he wore his, his white tie. He has, um, you know, the soup and fish from night. It's actually from 1924, which is extraordinary. My um, Bob is a. He's got a 44-inch chest and and a 34-inch waist, which makes him too broad for how skinny he is, you know, and too broad in the shoulders for his waistline. And we went into this antique shop one day, and there was a suit hanging there. And I said, is that decoration or is that for sale? And Because so, it, wasn't, it wasn't an antique clothing store. It was an antique, like, you know, one of these antique places in Lancaster have five million little yeah. antique shops in this big barn. And um, and he tried it on and it fit him perfectly, which is shocking because as I'm sure you well know, vintage clothing tends to be small. Yeah. Um, because men People were, were smaller back then. Yeah, we, we all were small. We were we were undernourished. I mean the, the simple fact of the matter is oh people were smaller back then because they didn't eat as well. And um, and we grow larger now. And the fact that you know, a 44-inch waist jacket goes with a 36-inch waist pair of trousers. And uh, and these were 34s, which is what he was. And the inseam even fit. It was just shocking. But anyway, so he wears the soup and fish on the on the, the boat. And it was a, a masquerade. So I was wearing a, a Victorian ball gown. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was in a corset. And I love people's misperceptions of what you can and can't do in a corset. And the funny thing is, he was wearing a stiff front shirt, you know, one of those starch shirts. Yes. It looks like it's plastic. It's really just loaded up on that much starch. And he dropped something on the floor, and he couldn't bend over to pick it up because he couldn't bend. But I could in the Victorian corset. (laughs) (laughs) And people were looking at us like, how can she bend and you can't? Because the perception is, oh, he's a man, so he's always dressed in, in clothing. He can do everything. No, soup and fish. It makes you it makes you stand up straight and keep your chin up because there's a, a collar that's going to cut your throat <laughs> sitting right under your chin. Got to be careful of that. Yeah, don't cut yourself on your own collar. Yeah. Um, but it's um, – I don't remember what my point was. Oh, being comfortable. There's, there's, you can be comfortable and be dressed well. I mean, what I'm always preaching about, that your clothing should fit you. If your clothing fits you, it's never uncomfortable. Yes, so, yes. So, you know, and I mean, 
I, I wear my share of jeans and t-shirts and flannels and, and stuff like that too, but, um, I don't feel good in it, you know? And we get asked all the time because we dress for dinner. When we, when we decide we're going to go out to a restaurant, we dress and people always say, Oh, what's the occasion? And we say, it's dinner. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the reality is we're dressing up because we, we like to dress up and, you know, um, like, are you at your prom? I'm 50 years old. Do I look like I came from prom? Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, but there was a while there when, when you would see kids going off to prom in, in the spring and they were wearing stuff that wasn't even formal. You know, now they've gone back to the floor length gowns again. But there was a while there that they were wearing just the things. I'm like, what are you? Is like, that a slip? Like, like a cocktail dress or something, something like a yeah. cocktail skirt or something. Yeah. Really? I mean, not even, not even what I would call a cocktail dress, you know, something I'm like, that's, you really going to your prom in that? Because prom was like the first time I ever wore a floor length gown that I wasn't in a wedding party, you know? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of kids, uh, look at sort of like prom as like, it's not really like a formal, it's more like, I think the word cocktail party for underage drinkers is more, <laughs> Does that make sense? I'm not really yeah, it sure. Does. It does. But, it does. but I mean, because uh, some of my fellow um, students from high school, we were talking about um, a, a teacher, Mr. Lewis, who was, he was very prim and very proper, but we didn't know that he was also a badass in the army back in, mm -hmm. the, you know, the World War II. And one of the things that he said is um, always wear a tie, always wear a shirt and tie. And I sort of, I took that to heart and mm -hmm. it's amazing how differently people will treat you. Yeah. People, and it's not fair, it's not right, but it's the way it is. People treat you according to how you dress. Yeah. And uh, really kind of interesting. One of the things, I mean, I went to Catholic school until I got to university and, um, and I hated uniforms because just the idea that I have to wear the same thing as everybody else. And it was polyester. Yep, and same here. The plaids didn't match. Oh my God. It killed me. I remember one, one of my uniforms I got when I was in grade school, my mom actually took it apart and put it back together so that the plaids would come. She was just horrified that the uniform company was putting together these skirts. So the plaids didn't match on the side. I mean, and wildly didn't match. Like no right. one cared. Yeah. And, and she was, you know, a garment worker. She's just like, I would be fired if I let this get out of a factory. Um, it wouldn't get out of the factory because there was QA. But um, Bob, my husband, used to work for a radio station. And the gentleman who owned the radio station, I think he, he bought it when he came home from the front in World War II. And he insisted that his DJs wear ties. Yeah. And you think, but you're on the radio. What does it matter? No, and you can tell. Yeah. And one of the things that, that they always said in Catholic school was, you know, you, you're serious because you're dressed in a uniform. You're, you're not, you're not in your play clothes. You're not in your hanging around clothes. You're in your clothing that is for you to be a student, you know, your student clothing. And that being in that uniform made the diff made you serious about study, um, which I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, but that's their justification for us wearing a uniform. Um, 
there are a lot of reasons for school kids to wear a uniform. I don't know if that one really works, but but the wearing the tie, even though no one ever sees you, you you do portray yourself differently. And and I'm I mean I'm the daughter of a garment worker and a construction worker. You know my my both of my grandfathers were coal miners. I'm not from wealthy people. Um, you know I'm from immigrants who did whatever job they could to to get by so that their children could do better. You know, I'm from, I'm from yeah. people who didn't know how to read and write when they got to this country. Um, so I'm not, and, and I, I, I never forget that. So I'm very much not a snob, but there is something to we're we're, we're creatures with eyes and our eyes give us information. And when you look at someone, you judge based on the information of your eyes. And if someone looks like a well-dressed person, you think well of them. And if they look like a sloppy person, you don't think well of them. So, I mean, and the, the dichotomy here is, you know, the person in the beautiful, uh, perfectly pressed and turned out suit could be, the biggest fraudster in the world sure, and, sure. and the person who looks like uh, a gang criminal could be the, the sweetest, kindest humanitarian you'll ever meet. Um, but we, we only have in, in the split second, when you first see someone, you only have the information that your eyes give you. And, and, um, and it matters. It, sir, you know? it, it really does. It, it um, watch as an experiment. I'm talking. I'm talking to our listeners, and to not you know, our, like a lot of first time listeners. When you go somewhere, dress up a little. Like put on a suit jacket, a, a pressed dress shirt, and a tie, mm-hmm. a decent mm-hmm. tie, and don't forget the tie clip. And notice how people treat you differently in everyday locations. Mm-hmm. See, see what happens. And you, and you should notice a difference if you're actually paying attention. Fine example is that I went to a, uh, after a job interview, I went to, of all places, BJ's Wholesale here. And they're mm-hmm. all over the place here in New England. I don't know about your part of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm, we have them, yeah. And, the, and, the, and I was in the wine aisle of, of all places. And there was this I, he must have been maybe 10, 15 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And he said, sir, could, could you help me pick out a wine? I'm trying to pick out some wines for my, my, my wife and her girlfriend's ladies' nights out. And I wanted to make sure that I, I bought something for them decent. And it was just like, well, what makes you think that I, I, I know anything about? Well, I mean, which I do. Because <laughs> you look like a wino, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get some Thunderbird. Don't mess with it the expensive that, stuff. That bottle of Mad Dog 2020 sticking out of your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, but and, uh, and, and I and I thought it, and I thought it was like incredible. Whereas it's like somehow I'm an authority. Yeah. And when I when I went to college, um, I would I would you know for the first couple of semesters I dressed up. I didn't play the role of Joe, Joe College. And there was this, there's this, the, on the, one of the, uh, 
on the first day of, of, of school, um, the, the prof- I don't know what happened, but it was a brand new professor. And for whatever reason, um, he didn't show up for the first class and he was very late for the second class. Mm-hmm. And of course, everybody was sort of like waiting and waiting, waiting for the professor to kind of show up. And there was like, there was maybe three or four or five people who were there that I didn't recognize. Like, this is like their very first, I was at the end. I, I was, and, um, and I just thought it would be funny. And I just stood up and I clapped my hands. I says, okay, everybody, let's get ready. Uh, it's time to get started. Um, uh, I am Mr. Fisk, but some of you can call me Eric. Um, welcome to, uh, welcome to Adobe After Effects for beginners. Uh, let's go around the room and everybody introduce yourself. And of course, everybody who knew me knew that I was just gagging, right? I was just, mm-hmm. I was just, but there were the four people who literally thought that I was the professor. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we went around the room. What I didn't know is that the department head was auditing the class. I didn't see her come in. I didn't see her <laughs> sitting behind the laptop. Oh my. So when he got around and everybody was introducing themselves they said, yes, I'm Professor Cullen, and I'm the chair of this department. I just want to see how you get out of this one, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Then- you went there with, with Adobe After Effects. If you'd said Aldous PageMaker, I would have been really impressed. <laughs> yeah. So, and the thing is that the professor did show up, and there were four people who were like, no, you're not the professor. He is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's. It's both a good thing that you can portray who you want to be or basically portray who you want to become. I mean, you're dressing up as a character, aren't you? Yes. Um, and the character is just someone you want to be. Um, it's, it's both a good thing about our society and a bad thing in that, you know, as someone – I mean, I've changed professions so many times it's it makes one's head spin. But – you think there's there's the moment at which you have to start thinking your, of yourself as your new profession, even if you don't make money in that profession yet. You have to yeah. change your mindset. You have to fake it. And one you make of it. the one of the perfect ways to do that is to start dressing differently, because then other people treat you differently, and you and you buy your own PR, so to speak. Yes. So you know, I mean, as as we've discussed previously, I was I was a. a uh, financial. Um, I was a broker in New York, a commercial paper broker, institutional money. And um, I dressed a different way when I did that. And then I became a graphic designer and just a different way to be a graphic designer. And mm-hmm. now I'm a costume historian. And, you know, if you go to, I mean, I do a, a, a number of uh, speaking engagements throughout the year at conventions and events and this kind of thing. And you show up at a convention as a, you know, the person talking about costume in jeans and a t-shirt and no one will listen to you. Exactly. You know, because, uh, and it, it was kind of funny. I was in an argument with someone online about, um, they were upbraiding me for, uh, appropriating cultures that were not my own for dressing in Japanese historical clothing, which I don't do often, but um, I do sometimes because I lecture on the topic. And the simple fact of the matter is if you get in front of anime fans and are going to tell them about um, 
historical Japanese clothing and you've never worn it, how can you communicate to them how they should wear it? They, they, you're just not legitimate. You know, and I was trying to explain to this person, I'm not appropriating another culture. I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher. And it's like, well, why can't you teach dressed as you do? Because it, I have no legitimacy. I'm not just a historian. I'm a costumer. And people who dress in costume as their hobby don't care for people who don't also do the hobby. It, it, yes. That, that, yeah. is, that is very true. One of the things that a lot of people um, sort of like, they didn't know how to take me. I don't even know if I know how to take me because looking <laughs> back, because, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I did not grow up with uh, a, a, a consistent male role model because, mm-hmm. you know, my parents were divorced in 1974. And, wow. you know, my mom was, yeah, back in 1974, that was scandalous. It was. And now right. it's like, what, your parents aren't divorced yet? What are they, Amish? <laughs> right. Your parents are together? How, what? what? Freaks are they? Yeah. Um, and uh, I, my, my, my male role models were the people that I saw in the movie or the TVs. And, and it was just like there was Tom Baker from Doctor Who, mm-hmm. Humphrey Bogart, because if it was in black and white, it was safe. It was a, oh, yeah. It's safe to watch. Yeah. And um, – and, and the whole thing about, well, Casablanca is a story about adultery during World War II. I don't know if you know that or not yet, Mom. <laughs> and, of course, you know, Harrison Ford in all of his movies. And the thing is, yeah. is that it, and I was cosplaying every day before the word cosplay. And it's one of the, oh. and, 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 I, and I hate the, the, the word cosplay. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was costuming at a very early age, at the age of 14, because I was, like, wearing like the pinstripe pants with with the uh, with the with the shirt and the narrow tie and I was and I was like I was dressing like Humphrey Bogart in um the big sleep or something yeah and- it's it's one of the things that I really love about um you know I, a lot of people of my generation kind of scorn goths and lolitas and and these kind of people but I think like I knew a girl who she was really big into the Lolita thing. And she worked in an office as a receptionist. And she wore perfectly appropriate business attire with crinolines underneath them to make them that kind of edge. And I thought, that's freaking awesome. That is so... I mean, there was nothing inappropriate about it. It was perfect business attire. She just brought her her hobby love to her daily work wardrobe. Yeah. And, and same thing with, with goths who, who work in, in a, a office place and dress in, you know, the beautiful long lines and quasi Victorian fashions. And, um, it, it is no different than you quote unquote cosplaying. Yeah. Harrison or Humphrey Bogart or, or me thinking I'm Ginger Rogers, you know, I mean, it's, you, it's not, it's not as weird as people outside think we're for, I mean, as a costume historian and and a pattern maker, I have tons of patterns. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's one, one particular pattern company called Hollywood that their whole gig was, this is a pattern that was worn by this 
person in a movie, or this is a pattern endorsed by this person, and I have, um, and they have the picture of the actor, actress on the pattern, and you know, um, I have a, a slip that has Betty Davis's name on it. Who knows if Betty Davis ever wore such a slip? But you know, it was the the whole part of the the um, studio system that this was part of your contract that you lent your name to these things. Yeah, and um, and you know. It's kind of funny, the same the same people who would go, oh, you know, kids these days, and, and when they say kids these days, they're talking about you and I. Yeah. Um, kids these days who are dressing up, and, you know, they're dressing up like these people they see in the movies. I'm like, well, you dressed like Cary Grant in your day, you know, and, and just because Cary Grant wasn't uh, a character, he, but he was a character in a movie. I mean, his name wasn't even Cary Grant. It, there are stories about... Um, Oh, what was his real name? Reggie something, wasn't it? And and people who really knew him would say Cary Grant is a persona he puts on. Like, very famous stories about Marilyn Monroe was, was she would she would turn it. She was Norma Jean normally. If you knew her, she was Norma Jean. And then she would turn it on. Yes. And um, because they're actors. Yeah. And um, and everything is a role. And and let's face it. I mean. In reality, it's not just actors. It's every single one of us. You know, you we have different roles that we have to portray. And I'm absolutely certain that you're not quite the same Eric who goes to the PTA meetings as you are Eric who goes to, you know, um, like diesel punk stuff. Well... I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm exactly the same. <laughs> no, I mean, because the thing is, is I, I, I hate being fake, but at the same well, yeah. time, I dress up. And well, I'm not talking about being fake. I mean, there are certain parts of your personality that come out at certain times. Yes, yes. And, you know, if you're sitting at a desk working for someone else, you might be fully Eric. Mm-hmm. But there are certain things that are not appropriate for an office and there are certain things that aren't appropriate when you're talking to your child's teacher and, you know, and, and not that they're bad things. They're just – right. you don't have this conversation. You don't allow this part of your personality off the leash because that – you know, it, it's kind of the difference between being with business people or, or um, uh, friends really. I mean, am I Eric at level four or am yeah. I Eric at level 11? Yeah. You know, um, because I mean, a lot of things that it's sort of like uh, and I and I watch this phenomenon happen uh, in the business world um, because I, I worked for a, um, where my wife and I met. We met at uh, a, a large company mm. uh, where they make m uh, medical testing equipment. And oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I just got it because I needed a job and I got a job as an assembler. And because I went to school for drafting, somehow they assumed that I knew how to read assembly drawings. <laughs> Goodness. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Are you another AutoCAD user? Because I, uh, I went to a college, whereas I was an AutoCAD user, but um, uh, SUNY Canton made a special sweetheart deal with the people who created CAD key. Oh. And CAD key is, I don't know why CAD key is more intuitive than AutoCAD. AutoCAD seems to have. Oh, it's insane. Their GUI is 
not a GUI. It's not. A, it's it's not. And it was like it. It's like it has a steep learning curve. Whereas with CAD yeah. key, you just jump in and you just use it. Um, but the thing is, is, is that I remember it's like everybody who worked on the second floor or was an engineer, like a, a manufacturing engineer. The you could only wear jeans and t-shirts or work slacks like Dickies mm-hmm. and a t-shirt or like a, a long sleeve t-shirt or whatever. So long as you were an assembly worker, somebody working on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they started to bring in casual Fridays, whereas you started to wear more casual looking suits than business mm-hmm. suits or business yeah. attire. You took your jacket off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was casual. And, I don't and, have my jacket on. And then on Fridays, you could wear whatever you want. You could wear T-shirt and jeans and sneakers. If mm-hmm. you, and, you, and, and, I, and I said, I'm telling you right now, this is the end. This is the end of, of formal business attire or business attire. Yeah. And people started just wear, just started to dress sloppily. Mm-hmm. Like people showing up in, you know, to work Monday morning in their, their Patriots fan attire because Mm -hmm. they won the game. And it's like, if the Patriots won the game, you could wear your Patriots um, warm up suit or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, and I don't know if I'm just imagining things, but I also think that the civility started to drain. Yeah. You could start to see the civility. People were not acting professional. As, as often as it were. And then casual Friday became casual Thursday and casual yes. Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and really the dot-com boom in, in the late nineties, uh, I think put the, the final nail in the coffin for that because I mean, I loved casual for, I really, really loved casual Fridays because you know, I wore, I dressed up quite a lot. Sure. And to not have to press something, for Friday morning was wonderful. And then, but then when it became every day, and, and this was the weird thing. The weird thing was casual Fridays had rules. Yes. I do remember that. And the rules were ridiculous. So I was like, no, you know what? I'm just going to wear my suit on Friday. And people were going to be like, did you not know it's Friday? But honestly, if I have to buy a whole other wardrobe because I can't wear jeans. I have to be casual, but I can't wear jeans. And I can wear um, a casual shirt, but my casual shirt has to have a collar on it. Well, that, I don't own those things. No. You know, I don't have things like that. And I think it was a lot easier for women than men because I find, you know, men, oh, well, you, have, you can't wear jeans and you, you have to wear a collared shirt. So now you're not wearing a suit, but you have to buy um, uh, not Dickies. I don't mean Dickies. Like chinos. Yes. And 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 um, polo shirts. And I hate polo shirts. Not just polo shirts, but polo shirts with the company name and logo <laughs> embroidered yeah. on the left. And now crust. we're back to uniforms. I'm like, I might as well be in Catholic school. Just shoot me. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. You know, and they're always polyester. Oh, no, no good polo shirts. They always look like a mess. Um, and yeah, there's something. There's, I, I am a rather casual person, but I don't think 
there is, I, I just like that this trend of being able to wear whatever you want to wear to work came in and everybody just got sloppy. Yeah. I remember I worked at a place called theglobe.com, which is now defunct as many dot-coms are. Yeah. But they had they had the biggest IP um, initial public offering, um, IPO, not IP. IP means something totally different now, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, they had the biggest initial public offering when they started selling stock in history. They were famous for it and then you know they went under and you know they were started by two 24 year olds and um and it i would be at work and you were lucky if people were wearing flip-flops because people would walk around the office without shoes yeah i do remember working for one dot com mm -hmm. back in 2000 back when the when after the bubble had per burst and there was mm -hmm. this rapid downward trend yeah. And there was like, and there was just a level of, it was, it was more like, it was more like a fraternity than anything else. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, how is anybody able to get any work done? How is anybody yeah. able to, you know, and, oh, Eric, don't worry about the computers. We'll take care of everything. You know, this is, this is the, this is the new digital age, mm -hmm. you know? And it was just like, no, you got to put, you got to put effort into, you got to put manpower into, I'm getting off the subject here. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you could you could watch just the civility and the way people treated themselves and treated each other mm -hmm. and their work. It just went down the drain with uh, uh, with the, the the casual business attire. Yeah, the over casualization of America, I like to call it. Um, and and it's it's true. And I don't think I'm just being a stodgy old person when I say that that. We lost something. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm a small business owner. I am, I mean, I've read advice that says I should get up every morning and dress as if I'm going out to a job and sit at my desk as if I'm at an office place and all this stuff. And I don't think that's bad advice. But for me personally, that is a way to make me not work. You know? really? <laughs> For me personally, if I can't sit on my, my um, chaise long and, and draft a pattern in my lounging pajamas, I'm not drafting a pattern. You know, it's, it's, there's a certain amount of, and it's, it's kind of funny. I'm 10 years of graphic design and I've got neck and shoulder problems that, miraculously went away when I could set up my workstation exactly the way I want to. And my, my workstation, I'm such a cow. My workstation is reclined on a freaking chaise long. You know? Yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, with my feet up and, and looking like, you know, somebody needs to bring me a Mai Tai or something. And, but it's, but it's honestly, it has less to do with me being a lazy cow and more to do with, there's a certain thing I learned about, um, what, what I have to do to keep my head and neck from causing me intense pain. Um, and it's kind of funny because, uh, I used to walk into a massage therapist's office and they'd go, Oh, you're a graphic designer. And we're like, how can you tell? Well, your one shoulder is higher than the other <laughs> in, a way, in a way that only that's your mouse arm. Right. <laughs> and in recent years I walk in and they go, really, you're, you 
you draft patterns for a living on a computer, you don't look like a computer operator. I'm like, well, I'm doing something right then. Yeah. Because I do this every single day of my life. And um, so, you know, I, I'm not and I'm not opposed to this trend. I'm absolutely not opposed to like the guys who set up the globe.com did it um, on laptops in their dorm rooms in the middle of the night because they were going to classes all day and and they did all this wonderful programming the architecture of the the um, site and it was terrific and it it couldn't have been done in a no, normal nine to five environment but you have to hang on to something because, I mean, I've been working um, from home since 2007, mm-hmm. well, full-time. You know, I haven't, yeah. had, haven't worked in, in uh, an office place since 2007. So that's, it's 10 years this year, you know? And um, there, is, there was a point where everything got too sloppy for me. That I'm like, ah, I really... If I don't want anyone from outside knocking on the door, if I don't want to answer the door because I'm that much of a mess, um, that's gone too far. I'm not saying I wake up and put makeup on, you know? <laughs> yeah. But at least to have a certain amount of pride in yourself, which I think is is a, the important distinction. It's not about... We we talk about it like it's the way that you portray yourself to other people, but it's more how you portray yourself to yourself. Yeah, and that's a tough distinction for people to try and understand. Yeah, and I'm not saying go and dress like something you're not. Go and dress like the person you want people to see. And I, I was recently reading a book on um, doing a stand-up comedy, uh, which is an interesting thought. Um, and the author was talking about your stage persona. You know, you don't have to create a stage persona like Bobcat Goldthwait, who, who creates an entire person who's not really him. Right. And speaks in a funny voice and dresses funny and all this. You, if, if, if you're inspired to do so, do so. But you don't have to be much different from yourself to be, to, for your stage persona. And he explained it like, say that you have... Um, your persona, your your personality, your real personality is sectioned into sections like a pie. So you have eight pieces of your personality. And the reality is when we get in front of other people, whether we're doing it on a stage or we're doing it in a business situation or even in a romantic situation or a friend situation – there are certain pieces of the pie that we exaggerate and certain pieces of the pie that we don't show. And, and that's what I'm talking about when I say, you know, when, when Eric is at the PTA meeting versus Eric in a business meeting versus Eric at home with his kids, there are different pieces of the pie that you're, you're showing, different yeah. pieces of the pie you're putting emphasis on. And none of it is not you. None of it is fake. It's just these are the bits that I show more. And, and I think that being a, a, a costumer and a reenactor and, and someone who stands on a stage often, I, 
instinctively learned that there were parts of my personality that um, that were private and yeah. that people didn't need to see and not not just because they're not just they're private oh I'm going to keep this away from you because I'm a snot bag and don't want you to get that close but there's there are things that that just are nobody's business and should be no one's business um, and there are also things that are just not they're not part of the narrative you know and um and that's interesting in our internet age where people become famous for what they show to the world on YouTube or Instagram or, or Twitter or what, right, what have right. you. It's, it's all a persona. Even if you don't think you're only showing – you're, you're portraying a persona to the world, you are. You're, you're selective. Yeah. And it was just like I, I would like to say – I'd like to believe that – the person that you're talking to now, this version of Eric Fisk that you're talking to, mm-hmm. or the person that I would be on YouTube, or mm-hmm. whenever I'm somewhere else, when I'm like right now, I am I am Eric Fisk of the Fedora Chronicles right now. Mm-hmm. And but there are times when, like I got to go to the school, I got to I got to be my son's dad, right. and I don't know if whether or not Eric Fisk from the Fedora Chronicles is appropriate. Unless, of course, I'm there with the understanding this is going to make it, its way into an article or a podcast in the near future. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I, I don't know. And when I'm doing, the, when I'm doing a podcast with, uh, with Walt for the Metaphysical Connection, mm-hmm. there are things that he and I joke about, which, uh, you know, I don't know you well enough to joke about that kind of stuff yet. Right. Um, <laughs> but it was uh, – but. When I I see people sabotage themselves so often, and it, it it and it makes me wonder, and and I've noticed there's a level of hatred and contempt and disrespect when I'm dressed as I'm hey look I'm dressed as me I'm dressed as Eric the person that mm-hmm. you see I, on Instagram that's you know I take pictures I take selfies all the time as sort of like a way to sort of like sort of like say. You can look this way. You can be this way anywhere and everywhere. Get out of the house and put put on your fedora. Get on the house and go out and do something. Mm-hmm. And it was just like I'm I'm wearing. I'm I'm dressed as me. I'm dressed as the character of Eric Fisk out into the world. And there's a, a hatred and contempt that I get from sp- some people who are wearing the postmodern American workers uniform whereas mm-hmm. everybody is dressed exactly the same way in some variations and it mm-hmm. was just like you know and i'm not and i'm not wearing the uh the colors and the emblems of the local tribe meaning right. i'm not wearing the paraphernalia of the local sports teams mm-hmm. and like somehow well if you're a man you have to wear oh boy you have you have to wear you know um, yeah. wh- where's your where's your Patriots cap or, or where's your Brady jersey? Well, mm-hmm. I don't have any of that. Mm-hmm. I remember my mother giving me a hard time because she called me up and my sister had to move out of one apartment to another again. And she says, you should get you should put on your car hearts and get over here and help me move your sister out of this apartment into the next one. I, I don't have any car hearts. Yeah. <laughs> why do I need car hearts? Why, do I, yeah. why would I need? Well, you, you grew up in Vermont. Oh, yeah. 
does that also mean that it's like I, I, I harvest maple syrup when I'm not skiing in the winter? I mean, what's, I know it's like she had a hard time understanding. She thought I was, I was joking. I was kidding. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a graphic designer. I'm a podcaster. I do drafting here. And, and I, why would I, why would I have, why would I have Carhartts? I don't understand. That yeah. would be like telling my brother to, you know, get his golf clubs and his, and his, and his golf polo and golf shoes and come out with me to the range. I don't golf, but I'm saying, yeah, he, or he has, he has no need for that, but you have need for decent clothes every Every, mm-hmm. every day or every week, mm-hmm. you know, do you have a shirt and tie? And, um, and it's like, I, I don't think that this is, this is a, a secret, um, to people who, who know me or follow my work for, uh, you know, my father has some weird mental disease. I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure if it's narcissism mm-hmm. or he's, but he's got something going on. He's undiagnosed mm-hmm. and he would show up to job interviews wearing a dress shirt which is which mm-hmm. is great no tie levi blue jeans hiking boots and his his signature belt with his big huge belt buckle mm-hmm. and he never understood why he never got the job if he gave a great interview mm-hmm. he never understood it yeah and he didn't own a suit and I was like, I was frustrated and furious with him because he did not want to dress up for my wedding. He didn't want to dress for my wedding. Mm -hmm. Even though it was on a beach, everybody was, everybody was dressing up besides him. My wife and I even bought him a pair of, 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 of khaki slacks, Mm -hmm. which he wore begrudgingly. But it was like, he never understood why he never got ahead in some circles. He never understood it. Yeah. He wanted to start a business, but nobody took him seriously because he always wore blue jeans and the big belt and the hiking boots. Mm-hmm. And it's it's unfortunate that people can't see past that. But it is the case. Yeah. And and you know, you set yourself up better if you go in with the tie and the dress pants and well turned out, everything pressed, clean. And then you can show them who you are. But until you get past that first preconceived notion, you can't show them anything. You know, it's kind of like you have to, I mean, it's, it's a cliche, the square peg trying to fit into a round hole. But if you pretend to be the round peg until you get to the other side of the barrier, then you can be the square peg. And so, so you see what I mean? I mean, it's just, it's. It's unfortunate. I, I despise when it becomes money or uh, physical attributes that we can't change or, you know, something like that. Um, I hate when who you are 
is a barrier to what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. Like if you have crooked teeth or if you have a weird birthmark, like right, somehow right. that's going to stop you from getting, you could be the most qualified person in the world mm-hmm. in your chosen field. But it's like, if you, if you look like a slob, if you're too short or too fat or, or too nerdy looking, you're not mm-hmm. going to get, you're not going to get to where you, where you need to go or where you could go at the detriment of everybody else. Cause the thing yeah. is, is that, uh, go ahead. No, no, it's, it's, it's just, it's a shame. It's a shame. And, and, um, Bob and I have arguments about this all the time, you know, because I, I don't think it should be this way. I don't think it should be that, um, if you wear casual clothing to the interview, no one takes you seriously. I mean, quite frankly, I think if you are beautifully turned out in clean, casual clothing that fits you and looks awesome on you, I don't, I personally, me personally, I'd be like, that rocks. You, right. you look great. Right. You know, but there's a difference between looking great and looking like a slob. Um, well, my, my father would go to interviews wearing the same dress shirt he slept in. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because yeah, he has a mental problem. He has mental. <laughs> he has a mental issue. He has a mental problem. Yeah, there's a bigger issue there. I think there's a lot then. more going on there. And and but the thing is, is that is it fair or is it right that I learned how to play the game at a very early age? Mm-hmm. Wear the wear the iron shirt. Wear the brand yeah. new slacks. The polished shoes with the matching socks. And play a play a version of Eric Fisk, and I get ahead. Yeah. I got a, I got ahead doing that as opposed to the person who didn't do that. Is it fair? That's also saying that it's like I can follow instructions and I can do what I'm required to do, including mm-hmm. dressing for an interview. Yeah, Is and it- it's it's really of course it's not fair. It's not fair, but it's a competition. You know, and competitions aren't fair um, because not everybody starts out at the same starting line. I was thinking of something we didn't quite go into when we last spoke, but it, it occurred to me. It's it's a story about um, being yourself. And I have an incredible inability to be what people want me to be. And it probably has to do with a lot of things not the least of which is that I'm an only child. So I kind of, you know, I, I never did anything wrong in my parents. I did a lot of things wrong in my parents' eyes, but you know, it's, it's, I never was compared to a sibling, which I think is very fundamental to my personality that no one says, why can't you be like your sister? Well, I didn't have a sister. Oh, it's awful. Trust me. Trust me. It's awful. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure I would be a completely different person if I were compared to someone like that. Because there's there's a certain peripheral um, comparison to cousins and and things or or friends' children that I suffered. But I can't imagine what it would have been like if if the person to whom I was compared was my – from the same parents, you know, sibling. Yeah. However, I remember at one point, I don't take direction terribly well. And I'm, I'm, people talk about, oh, you know, when we were in high school or junior high and how hard it was and how there was all this pressure to conform. And I did not get that gene. 
Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. I didn't get it. And I mean, and people say, oh, how could you not have, of course, I felt that pressure. But I remember very distinctly, I had these two friends and at, well, two different stories. Number one, I had a friend in grade school who told me, like she was my best friend and everything. And then one day she just kind of stopped talking to me and I was you know, 10, 12 years old and I was in a panic. Why aren't you talking to me? Why aren't you talking to me? And she said, well, I'll be your best friend again, but you have to never mention horses. And I was horse crazy. You know, I, this is what I did on the weekends. I went and rode horses and I thought, really? You... And I thought about it for a little while, and then I went, no, I like horses better than I like you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, you know, being an only child, the, the other thing about being an only child is you tend to be lonely because you don't have, you're not surrounded with, with uh, siblings. And, and so giving up a friend was a bigger deal to me than I think um, it might have been for other, other people. people. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I had these two friends in high school who at one point they were just like, okay, look, we're not going to be your friend anymore until you learn how to behave. And I was like, what? Define behave. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I said, okay, you know, my two best friends who were like 14, 15 years old, and it was really, really important that they like me. And I, I mean, to this day, I cannot conceive of saying this to anyone. It's it's craziness. It's crazy. Yeah, and and they said to me, um, "Well, we'll be your friends if you listen to us." <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, uh, I don't know that I never didn't listen to you." And then, like, a week went by, and I realized that all they did was shush me. Like every time we were around a bunch of people, and I went to say something, they would go. And I'm like, you just want me to stand here and look pretty. Thanks, yeah. You don't want me to speak. And yeah, I talk a lot. So what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I've made it into a profession. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, and... that, that exactly. That's a lot like what I experienced and why, I'm, why, why I am and where I am right now. Before we close out this episode of Retro Threads, I just want you guys to know that this is only part one of the conversation with Cass McGann on this topic. In part two, we continue to discuss clothes and style, dressing for the proper occasion, and just being yourself before this conversation morphs into talking about the financial system and the crises that occurred since 2007. Part two of this conversation will be on the server Monday, January 16th, 2017. This has been the Retro Thread Podcast with Cass McGann and Eric Render King Fisk. You can find out more about us by going to our show page, retrothread.com and thefedorachronicles.com slash retrothread. 
There you will also find a link to Cass's business, Reconstructing History, with countless patterns for you to choose from so you can bring your own retro vibe to your wardrobe. Our theme song is from Lina Sachs. The song is her cover of the song Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie. Check out all of her music at linasax.com. The Retro Thread podcast and other shows on the Fedora Chronicles have been brought to you by our listeners. Check out our homepage to find out how you can join in and participate. There you will also find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts and other social media outlets. So until next time, for Cass McGann and myself, this is Eric Ringer-Kinkfisk signing off. Keep your chins up and your fedoras on. Thank you.